Hi, welcome to Lights, Camera, Author. This is a podcast where we talk with authors who write books about movies, television, Hollywood, and anything in between. And I'm talking tonight with Mark Vieira. He has a new book called Warner Brothers, 100 Years of Storytelling, and it's coming out on May 30th. Mark, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Jim. I'm happy to be on. I believe you were on before, weren't you? A long time uh, ago? Forbidden uh, Forbidden Hollywood, I think. Yes, uh Forbidden Hollywood. Well, and he didn't learn his lesson. He's coming back for more. Okay. Uh, (laughs) Let me... uh, let me ask you, I was looking at this book, Warner Brothers, 100 Years of Storytelling. Now, this is published by Running Press. And, Mark, this is a beautiful book. I mean, not just is not just the stories, but the photos that are in it, uh, dealing with the very, very early days of the Warner Brothers studios up until recent, up until more recent movies. Um, I just got to compliment you on that. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's you know the the challenge was uh, as we got closer to the publication date or to my my deadline, um, make it as current as possible, and that meant uh, including the latest happenings with you know where the studio is going to reopen, where the theater is going to reopen. It was all the all the you know the lockdown was the the, the real issue for the the entire industry. And we wanted to be sure that, that we addressed it as, as recently as we could um, so that it would be, you know, the book would be relevant. It really would be a hundred years. Yeah. And I see, I'm a big history geek. I mean, I love, I love reading about the early days of Hollywood and the Warner brothers. For those of you who do not know, they, these were actual brothers. This was not just a corporate name. This was a family operation. Uh, back in the 1920s when they first started the studio. There was four of them, correct? Yeah, and they really had started around 1908 uh, in uh, Youngstown, Ohio, um, going from the, the shoe repair business to opening a a Nickelodeon or a little theater because they um, one of the brothers was asked to repair a projector. And in the course of repairing his projector, he became totally fascinated by not just the workings of the machine, but throwing an image onto a, a wall, you know, didn't have a screen, just throwing onto a wall, and they're moving, and, and then you watch it for a while, and then you start to have feelings for the characters, so what's, what is this, who is this person who, what's going to happen and something. Oh, wow. So he just got so excited about this. He, he had to borrow money, but he, he first had to get the, the approval of the, the three brothers and the father and mother. And these yeah. were young men and they were children. Uh, and so the way he got the approval, as he brought the projector to the kitchen and projected it onto a window shade, this movie. And, they they were entranced. They just said, "Ah, this is so make money. <laughs> well, let's let's do it. Let's do it." So anyway, that was was a long and rocky road from 1908 to 1923 when they incorporated. 
And I have to point out, as I have failed to do in the two interviews so far, you know, I'm seeing people who should know better. I have to point out to them, people on the Facebook, for example, talking about backlog, studio backlogs and so forth, spelling out brothers. Well, it's we not, have to it's, point out that it's it's B R O S period, and that's how, that's it. Period. You don't you right. don't spell it out ever, uh, because that's that's what they incorporated on April the fourth, nineteen twenty three, and it, it shouldn't be spelled out. It's only spelled out like when Jack Warner wrote his book, you know, talking about my brothers. He didn't spell it, you know, not my bros, but right. um, <laughs> in any case, it's uh, it's you know the idea that this family started from nothing. I mean, they were literally immigrants. They were and Polish they, immigrants. They yeah. It, yeah, they just pulled it together. Uh, I mean, they had to come to this country because their lives were in danger uh, um, from the Cossacks in Russia. Well, yeah. They were in what's Poland now, but it was Russia then, part of the Russian Empire. Anyway, but to, you know, to come here and then to, to figure out, well, okay, we're here. How are we going to survive now? And then repairing shoes. Everybody had shoes, so they had to repair shoes. That was a good business. But, but this, this, this really fascinated them. And they, you know, there was something. The youngest brother was the one who you know, was always kind of pushed aside and made fun of, and and he would go and and sing at the the movie theaters. Uh, it was called Chaser, and the idea that. When the the film one film ends, one screening ends, and they want to get everybody out of the out of the auditorium so they can start sell the tickets for the next screening, uh, they put this little boy up there to sing, and <laughs> ooh, let's get out of here. <laughs> so that, uh, that was Jack Warner, wasn't it? Is that who that was? Yeah, and, but he be, he became the one with the most sound business sense because he knew what an audience would stand for and what it wouldn't stand for. I mean, I wish I could have put this in the book, but unfortunately there was no room. But for example, he said, don't ever show, he said to the writers, don't ever show uh, anyone yawning on the screen. Why not? Oh, that's a, yeah. It, it'll make the audience yawn. And then they'll go exactly. and they'll miss, they'll miss important scenes or they'll just leave. So the things that he could only learn by being in a theater relating with an audience. Uh, and that's, you know, one of the things that made that studio great was they just had a feeling for what people wanted to see or, or didn't want to see. But, and, um, and the Warner brothers, they were the, uh, they were the, in, well, they were the innovators. Um, I don't know if you want to call them Johnny come lately to the, uh, to the movie, the business of movie making on the West coast, uh, because there were other, there were other studios already established, but they uh, they were innovative in how they made movies, weren't they? Well, let's let's look at this right from the beginning. Yeah, you had okay, you had uh, Adolf Zucker started Paramount in nineteen twelve, roughly really nineteen sixteen, between twelve and sixteen, and then uh, then you had Metro Pictures, and then you had which is not the same as MGM. MGM merged. Goldwyn and Metro with Mayer as a distributor, and that became Metro Golden Mayer MGM. But that was 24. It was a year after, but it was from three existing companies. But when 
the Warner Brothers Incorporated, the big noise were First National and William Fox and uh, Paramount uh, Lasky. Well, curiously enough, uh, Warner's ended up <laughs> acquiring First National uh, mm -hmm. and Vitagraph. But um, you're right, is that they, they came late, but what they did was they had a dog for their movie star. Every Tin had Tin. stars. Yeah. yeah, they had Rin Tin Tin. And then they got America's greatest actor, the, the Hamlet of a generation, John Barrymore, who was in his early 40s. They got him and they mounted a series of expensive uh, vehicles based on literary properties. Uh, Herman Melville's The Moby Dick Became the Sea Beast. Uh, man on Let's Go Became What a Man Loves. Um, they did these lavish costume things. This is a little company on, on Sunset Boulevard, uh, but they, they put every dime they had into these really beautifully crafted, well-directed with a man named Alan Crossland. And then, of course, the, you know, when sound technology was being laughed at by all the studios, I mean, the idea that uh, you wouldn't hear voices in a theater, oh, no, no, the theater is for music. You see the, the flickering image on the screen, a huge image, clear and shimmering, but with music. And, and you don't need to hear voices. You, you know, you, this is a universal language. But listen, no, he, the Sam Warner was insistent, this is going to work. This is going to really make, make a difference for us. And they needed a difference. They, they were still struggling. And you Even mentioned after, you know, four years. And you mentioned so they, Sam Warner. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, and he, he was the one who really pushed and pushed and pushed, and he wasn't feeling well. He was increasingly ill, and he pushed and pushed and pushed to get this sound technology perfected. They made a short subject. They made they put uh, Don Juan with John Barrymore with uh, music and effects, but the real, the real acid test would be, can we do a movie that has musical numbers in it with singing? And... They were filming that, and the actor, Al Jolson, ad-libbed some dialogue after a musical number. And they said, well, let's leave it in. Are you sure you want it? Oh, let's leave it in. Let's leave it in. That was the – and then what was so sad, the night that they showed that movie, and it was an absolute sensation, Sam Warner had been dead, I think, two days uh, yeah. of a, a – massive uh, head infection was the start of a sinuses, um, which was not uncommon in those days. Their, their big star, Marilyn Miller, uh, later died was exactly the same thing. Well, there, weren't, but, there wasn't uh, any, uh, the, the, uh, the medicines back in those days, it was, it was in the dark ages compared to now. There was no right, for infections, right. Uh, yeah, Irving Thalberg died uh, at age 37, some years, a few years later of an infection uh, due to pneumonia, not from heart failure, which everybody mm -hmm. thought would happen to him. But anyway, back to the Warner Brothers. Uh, yeah, you're right. The innovation, innovation. So then the next thing was um, musicals. I mean, what are you going to do with a talking movie? Well, just do musicals. And they, they led the pack with, with the stage-derived musicals for about a year and a half. And the audience is tired of that. So they, they said, what are we going to try now? Let's 
we're making movies based on the headlines you see in the newspapers. This was Hal Wallace's idea. He was the head of production along with Daryl Zanuck, who was at the head of the writers, working for Jack Warner. And then, of course, uh, Albert Warner and Harry Warner were back east uh, dealing with the finances. All the movie studios had their corporate offices in New York and their studios in California. And so some of them had some stages in, in uh, Astoria, Long Island, too. In any case, uh, the next idea they had was uh, gangster movies. Yeah. So they did first Little Caesar with Edward G. Robinson, and the audience, the, the, the public responded to it so strongly that some of the screenings, the theater in New York, the, the, the people were pushing to get in and they broke the doors, it literally cracked the glass on the doors. <laughs> And then you had Jimmy Cagney. Yeah. Pardon me? Oh, James Cagney? Yeah, that was a few months later. Uh, mm-hmm. That was the, the, public, the enemy. public Enemy. The, the Public Enemy was directed by William Wellman. And it was tremendous uh, success. Um, and, you know, the scenes were cut from it in the mid-30s when it was reissued. Well, no, I'm sorry. It was, it was, it was going to get its first reissue in 1953, and they cut. Oh, about five minutes of footage from it. And some of it was restored a few years back for a DVD, but some of it they still can't find, sad mm-hmm. to say. But it was, the, uh, it was that violent and that sexy, the, the movie, um, Public Enemy. And that was a pre-code and era. Made, yeah. Yeah, the pre-code era began in, in March 1930 when the, the code was, when there was a production code was, was signed by all the studios. We agree not to show this, 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 and this in our movies. And within six months, they were showing this, 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 and that in their <laughs> movies. And this went on till July 1934, uh, when they were forced by a consumer boycott. And that's exactly what it was. Um, in the big cities in the East and Midwest, uh, American Catholics were told by their priests from the pulpit, you are not to attend any movies this week. Yeah. The Legion of Decency. So this went on. Yeah. Yeah. This went on for about two months. And wow. The, <laughs> what was this? The, the, the censor said, well, you can shoot a cannon down the, the middle aisle of the, the state theater and, and you won't hit anybody. There's nobody there. We, we did it. We did it. So the, the studio signed a, a new reconstituted code in July 34. Joseph Breen was going to be the administrator and it was a, it was a great success. It really did keep the studios on the track. And the thing it was meant to do was really keep the government from instituting federal censorship, such as there was in Italy with the fascists. And this, this, you know, did prevent that. You know, and like you said, like you said, I mean, they, they uh, they were they were innovative, but also didn't the uh, in your opinion? Let me ask you this: Didn't the uh, code of conduct force the directors and writers to be more creative? Because there was way of there were, I saw the Sin Man the other night, and there were things in that movie which I I was really surprised at. Well, that's pre-code though. That is, that is pre-code, isn't it? Yeah. That's pre-code. Yeah, that's April of 34. 
Yeah, but see the watch the next one after the Thin Man, and you'll see how they're adapting. Yeah, you're right. They um, the code required them to convey ideas without showing it, without showing things. Um, and this is what Ernst Lubitsch, the, the director, was one of the people. Speaking of innovations of Warner Brothers, they brought this brilliant director from Germany. Well, in their first year, as a matter of fact, um, and he was known for the the Lubitsch touch. And what that was was he would convey a sexy idea with some kind of symbol, um, like. A, a door or a, a glass of champagne or something like that so you know what was happening without having somebody in the movie say so or having some scene with some people in bed or something. Um, he was brilliant with that. So the studios had to really uh, become adept in that kind of, uh, what was it called, signaling, uh, yes. signifying or whatever. <laughs> And let's jump ahead a little bit here with World War, at the onset of World War II. The Warner Brothers, they were, uh, they were of course, uh, during that time, they started to make propaganda films. Well, they don't, they're not official propaganda films, but they are, they are World War II uh, ally, ally films. I, I get, what would be the right term for them? Um, well, they were, yeah. Urging Americans to to join the the worldwide uh, conflict and and to support support American soldiers who had who who were signing up. But the one, one thing that was very lucky they were they were lucky twice. In forty one, uh, a former Paramount founder, along with Cecil B. DeMille, Jesse Lasky, came yeah. to Jack Warner and said, "Look, I've got an idea. If we can get Gary Cooper to play." Alvin York, the famous pacifist who became a war hero in World War One, I. I think you'd have a tremendous hit. And he said, "Well, if you can get them both, good luck." But you know, I don't, I don't think you're going to do that. So what Lasky did was he told Alvin York, "Oh, Gary Cooper wants to play you," and he told Gary Cooper, "Oh, Alvin York wants you to play," <laughs> and they and they both fell for it. <laughs> they both signed. Um, and this film became a massive, massive success just oh, as huge. war was being declared. So young men seeing this film just rushed out of the theater and went and signed up for World War II. And during that time they enlisted. And during that time they also during that time they also created one of the greatest films ever in Casablanca. Right, and that was their second stroke good good luck in that there was an actual military offensive in Casablanca just as this film was coming out. I mean, who could ask for better oh, timing? <laughs> See, and, and was it true what I heard? We studied this film when I was in college many, many years ago. But we, we were told that the, the script was not complete or that, that, that the actors... Uh, Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman were given given the dialogue the day of the shooting or something like that. Was that is there any truth in that? Yeah, that's true. And, and oh, it is also okay. they didn't know how it was going to end. So Ingrid Bergman would say, "Well, which man am I going with? We don't know yet. 
well, how do I look at him? That's up. You just figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> and when that, when that picture won, um, let me make sure I get the right picture here. When Casablanca won the Academy Award, uh, the director wanted to go up and get it, but then all of a sudden he no, thought no, it Jack was uh, it was Hal Hal Wallace was the producer who had brought the project to Warner Brothers, uh, had been with the Warner Brothers since twenty three, and was really that as Zanuck left in thirty three over a uh, really kind of ugly thing, where he was he made a promise. Well, uh, okay, people. We need to take a salary cut, but it'll be restored as soon as this crisis passed. And this, and President Roosevelt put some things into place. Well, Roosevelt put things into place, and things were getting better. And he said, "Well, to Jack Warner, we got to restore the salary cuts." Are you kidding? No, we're not going to restore <laughs> the salary cuts. So Zanuck uh, quit. All right. So ten years later, Hal Wallace has been since Zanuck's departure the head of production under Jack Warner. And uh, although Jack Warner put it on every film, Jack Warner had a production. Yeah. Um, Wallace really crafted Casablanca. I mean, Curtis is a great director. He put, put every shot together, everything in there, and then squeezed every emotion out of those people. But it was Wallace's baby. You know, he really, really got that thing together. So at the Academy Award banquet, um, he, he stood up to... to collect the award and Warner pushed past him and strode up there and grabbed that Academy Award and that was wow. it. And Wallace was outraged. Never forgave him, I believe, so, right? Something like that. Yes. Well here's what happened. <laughs> <laughs> he went he went to Paramount and I, who was in charge then? Zucker was in charge, I think it was wife Frank Freeman, and said, Oh buddy De Silva, that's right. He said, Listen, I can't take it anymore. Can't take it anymore. Can you can you use a producer, but who would work on your lot, but release through you, not be one of your producers? They said, uh, "We know what you do. Yes, we'd be love to have you." So he told Warner, and Warner said, "Okay, fine, uh, but you have another few weeks on your contract." Yeah. Okay, so the next Monday, Wallace went to his office he'd been locked out oh wow so he knew what that meant he he knew that he could be dragged into court for breach of contract if he didn't work those three weeks so he said okay two can play this game he bought a desk and table and chairs and typewriter and papers to the lawn in front of the building he <laughs> sat down and worked all day at the lawn on the lawn after a couple of days there, getting his work done on the lawn, a truck drives up and dumps a load of manure right next to us. Oh, jeez. <laughs> so you see that this, you know, <laughs> the little boy of the family, uh, Jack Warner, you know, grew up to be a gigantic terror. I got another word for that, but I'll, I'll keep it clean. Okay. <laughs> and uh, Yeah. Uh, now, before we move on, I got a during right prior to this time, the Warner Brothers introduced an animation studio known, known as now as Termite Terrace, and some right. of the greatest some of the greatest uh, cartoon people or cartoon people that's good cartoon characters came out: Porky Pig, Daffy Duck, and of course Bugs Bunny. Yes. How did that get started? 
it started in, in, in uh, well, they saw Paramount was doing well with theirs, uh, you know, Fleischer. So they thought oh, you know, we need, need to get this, get this going. Yeah. And, um, and MGM had no uh, cartoons at that point. Um, they followed once Warner had a big success on MGM followed suit. But, uh, you know, it was like everything else at Warner Brothers just find that somebody who's, who's good at, at you know, at the, set, the way they found these brilliant composers, yeah. you know, Max Steiner, Eric Wolfgang Korngold, uh, you know, they, they just knew where talent was and they, they, they did pay them fairly. They worked into death, of course, uh, yeah. literally in some cases, but, uh, yeah, they, they, they were just fine people that they knew were, were good and, and get them in there. Yeah, I would like to say that the Warner Brothers had a happy ending and everything like that, and, and they stayed together, a family operation, but that didn't happen. And and it has to do with something that Jack Warner did. I mean, he, he basically really just pulled a fast one on his other two brothers, didn't he? Yes, um, they decided, okay, you know, we're tired, we're old, let's let's uh, let's sell the company um, and, you know, get out while we're getting out. So while we still have our help. Uh, and they were in their, you know, seat, 70s at that point, mid yeah. 70s. So, and they, luckily they were all still healthy. So they, uh, he, he arranged, Jack Warner arranged for this Serge Semenenko kind of a financier to, to put the deal together. And they kind of wondered about this guy, but oh well, it's, you know, we'll see what, how it goes. So it was after the papers were signed and they got their checks that they, it was, uh, Harry was at the breakfast table and he opened, I guess, Variety and saw Jack Warner returns as president of Warner Brothers. <laughs> so they re he realized that he had done a, a, a backdoor deal with Semenenko to get the brothers to sell out. And he, he stayed and ultimately pocketed $32 million wow. in, in 1960s money, which is <laughs> a lot yeah. more than, than that. Now, um, the heartbreaking so, story I heard was that there was a family that first off the family ostracized Jack Warner from there on worse, out. It was worse. It was worse. It's when Harry read it, he fell down from the breakfast table onto the floor with a stroke. Uh, so when they had the family reunion uh, for his birthday, uh, how like what five years later, maybe six mm -hmm. years later, uh, Jack came to it and everybody said, Oh God, here he is with his fake suntan and his little mustache and everything. Um, you know, hi everybody. Uh, and like nobody wanted to talk to him. And there's this Harry sitting there still stricken. Uh, and he couldn't really talk and he could, you know, he was paralyzed and right. just his tears ran down his face. It was just awful. And then Jack just kind of saw it and just backed out of the room and left. Closed his eyes. Harry Harry closed his eyes because that was the only way he'd get away from him. Right, exactly. It was a terrible, terrible thing. Uh, but now, but like uh, uh, as time went on, Jack Warner eventually, of course, was replaced. 
because he had, I mean, he, he had his own issues with one with the changing culture as, as time will do. Um, and also, I mean, he was getting up there in age in the, in the sixties too. I believe it was late sixties. Is that what well, he 60s, was? Yeah. Well, 60, he, he produced, uh, Camelot was going to be the big deal. Cause you know, the play hadn't done all that well. It's a, it's a beautiful play and the music's wonderful, but it had been given this whole boost. But when Jackie Kennedy said, Oh, Jack and I used to play this at bedtime, this, this LP, the sound, you can't call it a soundtrack, you know, the, right. the, the songs from, from Camelot with Julie Andrews, Richard Burton, Robert Goulet. Oh, we used to play this. So everybody bought that album. I mean, my God, you would have thought the play was like My Fair Lady, a huge hit. So Jack Warner said, oh, we're going to do Camelot. We're going to do Camelot. So they, they built this gigantic set and, and everything. And he realizes, you know, it's not like it used to be where, you know, I assigned this department and I get this one to do it. And do it. No, I'm dealing with everything you have to do. I have to go through agents and conglomerates and, and he was just having to, he, he just was, everything's about packages, packages, packages. He says, I can't do this anymore. So he, he sold it out. Uh, was this became Warner? He sold it to this company of seven arts. And seven arts. Mm-hmm. as I understand it was, he became Warner seven arts in 67, 68. Uh, that lasted only two years though. Um, but, uh, he left and then I saw him in 73, I was at film school at USC and we were, everybody was celebrating the 50th anniversary of Warner Brothers that year. And we had a screening of Casablanca, a nitrate print uh, at USC. And he came to it. He was like two rows ahead of me and he stood up and lashed his hands and waved everybody and everything. Everybody clapped for him. And then we, the, the lights dimmed and there's, I've seen it again recently, the same print. And I tell you, when that fanfare comes on in a nitrate print, the sound is so rich and boom. Wow. And those trumpets are so sharp. It's, it's really something. <laughs> you have to see old movies in the original prints to understand what the big deal was in those days. I, can I mean, imagine. I love digital t- technology. I love I love my Blu-rays, I tell, I tell you. But I love 16 millimeter print, and then I love nitrate, seeing a nitrate print of an original movie. There's just something about that, you know, first generation. The sound is really, really clear. And the image, of course, is creamy and shimmery. But uh, that night uh, in December 73, with Jack Warner in front of me, that was pretty special. So, I mean, I brought that memory with me as I wrote this book, and it really was uh, important to me. Fantastic. Well, the the author's name is Mark Vieira, and the book is Warner Brothers, B-R-O-S, 100 Years of Storytelling. And I believe it comes out on May 30th is is the release date. Yeah. And it's by Running Press. So, again, Mark, thank you for being on Light the Camera Author tonight. Oh, thank you, Jim. I really appreciate the opportunity to visit with you again.